Scripture reading this afternoon is from Job chapter 19. Job 19, where we find what are perhaps the most well-known words in the book about Job's Redeemer. William Henry Green, the old Princeton professor, said, It is deservedly ranked as the most important passage in all Job's discourses. In some respects, it is one of the most signal passages in the entire Old Testament. These words at the end of Job 19 exalt the patriarch of Uz to a level with the patriarch of Ur and mark Job as no less an example of faith than Abraham, the one as distinguished and heroic in his constancy and suffering as the other in his unswerving obedience. Job chapter 19, we'll read the whole chapter This is in response to Bildad's sermon last week about hell. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have reproached me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. If I cry out concerning wrong, I'm not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope, he is uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. And I'm repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me and those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me. Have pity on you, me, O oh you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? And are not satisfied with my flesh. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock. With an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed. This I know. That in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. 
how my heart yearns within me. If you should say, how shall we persecute him? Since the root of the matter is found in me, be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. Beloved, as we've been studying the book of Job, we've been thinking about suffering and why God allows it, how we respond to it. And for some of us, this may prepare us for sorrows that lie ahead. But for others, you may already be in the trial. And so as we read this afternoon about Job being reproached by his friends and rejected by society, even apparently rejected by God, these are things that you're in some measure able to relate to. You know what it's like to feel the physical pain of verse 20. You know what it's like in some measure to feel the relational strain of verse 3 or verse 14. The unanswered prayers of verse 7. And like Job, you find yourself wondering perhaps whether God even cares. You hear about his love and wonder whether it's passed you up. You look at the evidence of your life and don't know what to conclude other than that it's passed over you. As perhaps like Job, you've lost a child. Or maybe like Job, you know or have known immense physical pain or the sting of betrayal, even a spouse, verse 17, who finds you a stench. And you think to yourself, if my life is evidence of what God thinks of me, then I guess he doesn't care. But Job teaches us in these beautiful words at the end of chapter 19, these beautiful words that shine in the darkness of the rest of the chapter, that the evidence of God's love for you is not in the circumstances of your life, but in what he's done for you in his son. Christ, Job teaches us, is the evidence of God's love for you. Christ is the proof that God cares. Christ is your assurance that neither death, nor life, nor tribulation, nor distress, nor famine, nor nakedness or sword will be able to separate you from the love of God. Job teaches us to look to our Redeemer in the midst of the darkness and trust. Not because we know that things are necessarily going to get better in this life, but because we know what God has done for us in his son and believe that the God who raised him from the dead will one day raise us and we will see him in our flesh and behold him with our eyes. That's the hope of Job 19. The hope that shines all the more against the dark backdrop of the rest of the chapter. And so as much as we might like to jump straight to verse 25 in Job's future redemption, we need to consider first Job's present rejection. His rejection by his friends, his rejection apparently by God, his rejection by society as a whole. And it's against that dark backdrop that those bright words of verses 25 through 27 shine all the more. First, Job's rejection by his friends. 
Really, we've been watching Job's rejection by his friends ever since chapter 4. We have that prologue in chapters 1 and 2 where we learn about all of the suffering that came upon Job. And then in chapter 3, he cries out with a loud lament about this, this darkness that he's experiencing. And then Eliphaz opens his mouth. And Eliphaz says in chapter 4, Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Remember, he says, the innocent never suffer. The righteous are are never cut off. But those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Implying that Job has brought this upon himself. He, He goes on to say, I have seen the foolish taking root, but I cursed their dwelling place and their sons were crushed in the gate. Eliphaz has blamed Job for the death of his sons. Or Bildad, in chapter 8, blames them. He says, if your sons have sinned, God has cast them away for their transgression. And then he tells Job, in so many words, that the same is going to happen to him unless he repents. He has listened to Job's cries and called them windy words, nothing but a loud belch. The friend Zophar in chapter 11 has misquoted and mischaracterized Job. He's told him that God exacts of him less than his sins deserve, that God is is taking it easy on him, but has pastorally abused him with the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility. They've called Job wicked. They've implied that he's a fool. And just last week in Job 18, have directed a whole sermon at him about hell with no hope of salvation. And so Job says, how long will you torment my soul? You're my friends who who have supposedly come to comfort me, but instead you have added to my affliction. You have broken me to pieces with your words and have sought to condemn me. He says, these ten times you have reproached me and you are not ashamed that you have wronged me. Ten, remember, is a number of fullness. He's saying, you have poured out reproach upon me, and you have not held back. All this, even though whatever sin I've committed has nothing to do with you. That's Job's point in verse 4. If indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If I've committed some sin, it's between me and God. I've been trying to pray to him, but you keep interrupting me and picking my words apart. So stop exalting yourselves over me and making my disgrace an argument against me. Stop rationalizing and start sympathizing. One commentator said it well, from the pinnacle of their superiority, the friends presume to justify Job's disgrace, arguing the case to justify his pathetic condition. Like many mortals, Job's friends are prone to rationalize rather than sympathize. For them, sin is the necessary cause of Job's condition. And before we move past the rejection that Job experiences at the hands of these friends, we do well to consider whether we too have not sometimes done this. By being guilty, verse 4, of offering counsel when it's not needed and hasn't been invited. Being guilty, verse 3, of adding to the reproach and shame of one already hurting by blaming them and and failing to sympathize. 
Verse 5, exalting ourselves over them and using their suffering against them to prove they've sinned. Love, this is cruel. This is not loving. And the reason why we keep coming back to it, the reason why the inspired author of the book of Job gives us 42 chapters of it is to inoculate us against this kind of counsel. Quoted this before, Eric Ortland says, one of the reasons why the poet lets this debate go on for so long is to provoke such disgust at the friends that we resolve never to speak to sufferers in the same way. And it's important that he do so because we say these things too. We say the same kinds of things as Job's friends. And so as Job rebukes his friends in verses 2 through 6 of this passage, this rebuke is simultaneously directed at us. For all of the ways that we speak and act like Bildad, for all of the ways that we sympathize with the sentiments of the friends and adopt a theology of glory instead of a theology of the cross, Job says, you've wronged me. You have added to my suffering." He's been rejected by his friends who misunderstand, verse 6, that God has put him in the wrong. That's how the ESV translates that, not um, God has wronged me, but God has put me in the wrong. He has treated me as if in the category of the wicked. To use the, the categories of the friends, he has put me in the class of those who are guilty and surrounded me with his net. And not heard me when I cry. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. Job 29 will refer to Job as something of a king. We saw in, in chapter 1 his, his uh, little, little kingdom, all of his possessions and servants, something like a kingdom. But Job has been brought low. Job has been stripped. He's been stripped of his glory. And his kingdom has crumbled to the ground. As God has brought the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28 against him and broken him on every side, gathered his troops to encamp around Job's tent. This language that he's using in in verses 7 to 12 is metaphorical language that will later be used by the prophets to describe the exile. Where Lamentations 3.8 will echo verse 7 in God not hearing his cry. Where Lamentations 3 verse 2 will echo God setting darkness in his paths. Um, Jeremiah 13 and Lamentations 5, that language of the crown being removed from his head. This is the language that the prophets will use to describe Israel's humiliation in exile. That God will strip them of their glory and take their crown from their head. Verse 8, he will fence them in and trap them in a city that is under siege. That's what he'll do to Israel and Judah as he surrounds them with the armies of verse 12. And that's what he's done to Job. That's why Job says he has put me in the wrong. He's saying he has treated me uh, as if I'm wicked. He has allowed these things to happen to me that are supposed to be covenant curses. Job is a righteous man. 
And yet this righteous man, this one who Job 1.1 and 1.8 and 2.3 tells us is a blameless man who fears God and shuns evil, has become a curse and suffered the fate of sinners. He's become like Christ. The one who knew no sin yet became sin for us and suffered the wrath and judgment of God for sin, though blameless. And Job will continue to play the part of that suffering servant in verses 13 to 20, where not only is he rejected by God, but he's rejected by all of society. His brothers have been put far away from him. It's a reference to his friends and neighbors who have separated themselves from him. It says his acquaintances are completely estranged from him. They have unfriended him on Facebook. They've unfollowed him on Twitter. They've removed him from their Christmas card list taken his picture off their fridge. His relatives have failed and forgotten him. His own servants who who used to come at the snap of a finger now ignore his cries for help. This man who back in Job chapter 1 was at the very height and fullness of glory has now become a public disgrace. That even the little kids make fun of verse 18 as they get off the bus after school. It says his breath is offensive to his wife. That word for breath is is, um, life or spirit. And so it may be saying that his very existence offends her. As well as, as the children who are mentioned in verse 17. This speaks not of his own children who've died, but the children of his mother. As the ESV says, even they, even his own siblings, are repulsed by him. Everyone has distanced themselves from him. Job has become a public disgrace. It is utterly alone. Like Christ on the cross, mocked by thieves and passers-by, deserted by his disciples, denied by Peter, betrayed by Judas. In fact, the very language of verse 19 where Job says that his close or familiar friend who he loves turns against him is echoed in Psalm 55 where David speaks prophetically of what Judas will do to Christ. A familiar friend who betrays him. That's what these three friends have done to him. So like Christ on the cross, he's utterly alone. He looks for comfort and pity, verse 20, looks for help, looks for an advocate, but finds none. Not from heaven, not from earth, not from his own friends or family, not even from his wife, not even from these men who in, in Job chapter 2 sought to, to set out and, and give him comfort and mourn with him. Not even from them does he find comfort. And so Job cries out to the rocks in verse 23 and says, Oh, that the case I have made for my innocence and my righteousness could somehow be inscribed in a book, could somehow be inscribed on a rock with an iron pen so that that rock might stand as my monumental witness and eventually, even after I die, I might be vindicated. Job is saying the same thing that he said back in chapter 16. We said around uh, verse um, 18 or 19 of that chapter, O earth, do not cover my blood. Let not my cry have a resting place. Job is saying again, he wants his case to be written down so that eventually there will be justice. And right as he's saying this, 
The same thing that happened back in chapter 16 happens again right in the middle of crying out for for his case to be inscribed on a rock. He is overcome with a flash of conviction that there is an advocate who will redeem him. Remember back in chapter 16, as he was crying out for the earth not to cover over his blood, he said, surely my witness is now in heaven. And here he says the same thing. As he finds no advocate on earth, his hope turns to heaven. Green says, as he utters this wish, that his innocence would be inscribed on the rock, the certainty that justice must and will be done flashes with strong conviction on his soul. As if he says to himself, I have asked for a record on the rock, but all the while I know my Redeemer lives. I need no monument of stone to vindicate me. I need no inscription on a rock with an iron pen. I have an almighty Redeemer who will rescue me from wrong and will defend me against slander, who will certainly, and in spite of all present appearance, reveal himself to me as my friend to whom I can entrust my cause with confidence. This is Job's hope of a future redemption, shining in the darkness of his present rejection. The Holy Spirit speaking prophetically through him reveals that there is a Redeemer who will take up Job's cause, who will assume his flesh, though at the same time being divine, and will finally redeem him after Job has died, as he said back in chapter 14. This confession in chapter 19 is the culmination of all the prophetic longings Job has been grasping for. Remember he said at the end of chapter 9, he spoke of the possibility of a mediator or an arbiter who would somehow lay his hand both on God and on man and take away God's wrath so that Job could speak with him and not fear his wrath. He's spoken in chapter 16 of how this mediator would be his friend and yet at the same time stand in heaven. He's spoken in chapter 14 of how this great reconciliation for which he longs might happen even after his death where he will live again and God will desire the work of his hands and put away his sin. Cover it over and put it in a bag and throw it away. And now all of these different themes from chapter 9 and 14 and 16, all of these themes of a mediator and life after death all come together in this climactic confession of chapter 19. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes behold and not another. I look at four aspects of this triumphant confession of God's servant. First, that his hope is in a Redeemer. What's a redeemer? Boys and girls, remember the the story of uh, Ruth and Boaz in the Old Testament. That's probably the the place in the Old Testament where we see most clearly what a redeemer is. Redeemer was someone to whom you were related, whose duty was to take up your cause when you were in need. Remember, that's what Boaz did for Ruth and Naomi. He became their redeemer who stood in their place at great cost to himself and redeemed them from their place of emptiness. 
A redeemer would defend the cause of the needy, would care for them when they could not care for themselves, would, would defend them against wrong and stand for them when there was no one else to stand for them. This is what Boaz did with Ruth and Naomi, and this is what Job is confessing someone will do for him. Which takes us then to the second aspect of Job's confession. Who is this redeemer? As I said in the Old Testament, a redeemer was someone to whom you were bound by blood. It was a family member. It was a next of kin. And so this must be someone with whom Job shares a common humanity. And yet at the same time, it must be someone who, who, it is someone who goes on in verse 26 to identify as God. It's someone, as he said in chapter 9, has affinity with both him in his humanity and God in his divinity. As he said in chapter 16, who stands in heaven and yet also pleads for him as a friend. We see this Redeemer's divinity in the way that Job refers to him at the end of verse 26 as God. And we see his humanity in the way that this God in verse 25 will stand upon the earth. C.J. Williams says, God will become visible and stand on the earth incarnate as Job's Redeemer. This goel, which is the Hebrew word for Redeemer, will make the invisible God visible. And somehow will stand as Job's defense before God. He will make the invisible God visible and yet at the same time will stand as Job's defense before God. Again, Williams says the Redeemer that Job envisions rescuing him from the wrath of God is at the same time God himself. Job anticipates a divine Redeemer who will rescue him from divine wrath. This, beloved, takes us to the very heart of the gospel. And only makes sense from a Trinitarian understanding of salvation. The redemption of God rescues him from the wrath of God. The Father's justice will be satisfied in the Son's sacrifice, who will become the one of verses 7 through 12, who is stripped of his glory to hang naked on a cross. The crown of glory of verse 9 being replaced with a crown of thorns as he is uh, broken on every side, verse 10. As the wrath of God is kindled against him and he is counted as God's enemy. This is what Job's redeemer will do. He will replay all of verses 7 through 12. He will cry out, verse 7, but be forsaken. And not just by his father, but by his brothers, verse 13. By his close friends, verse 14, who fail him, who fall asleep, who as the shepherd is stricken, the sheep scatter. He'll be forsaken by his servants, by his bride, Israel, by his children. He'll become the one, uh, verse 19, betrayed by those he loves so that his bone clings to his skin and to his flesh, verse 20. This is the suffering that Job's Redeemer will undertake as he stands in his place to save him, to save us. 
He will replay all of the suffering that has been described in this chapter and in this book, becoming a curse, going into exile for us, suffering the wrath of God in our place so that we could be restored to God. And Job says this redeemer, he will behold with his eyes after his skin has been destroyed. Leading to a third aspect of Job's confession that the full and final redemption he awaits will be after the complete destruction of his flesh in death. Job is clearly referring in verse 26 to his death. And yet unlike what Bildad said in 18 verse 14 where he said that death would parade Job before the king of tares, Job instead confesses that death will somehow usher him in to the light of divine presence. This is the the continuation of his hope from chapter 14 where he said after he dies he will wait until his renewal comes when God will call and he will answer and God will desire the work of his hands and the fellowship with God that Job has so longed for will be consummated as after his death he beholds his redeemer face to face. Job is here expressing the culmination of all the prophetic hope we've seen so far in the book. Job is here expressing in seed form the same hope that we confess when we say in Revelation 22, then we shall see his face. What Job has longed for all throughout this book is communion with his creator. That's what pains him most, not the loss of of material goods and not the loss of, of his livelihood and circumstances and family, but the loss of a felt experience of communion with God. That's what he spoke of back in chapter 10. He says, oh, how I long for that experience of your loving kindness that I once knew. Instead of the felt experience of his judgment, he longed for the felt experience, the felt presence of God's smile. He wants to behold the face of his Redeemer. And the Spirit of Christ in him now testifies that that day will come after his flesh has been destroyed and is then raised up on the last day that the one he longs for will stand upon the earth and Job will behold him with his eyes. His eyes. That's the fourth aspect of Job's confession that we want to look at, the personal experiential aspect of it. Notice the the personal pronouns that are used throughout these verses. He speaks of my Redeemer, this I know that I shall see God for myself and my eyes shall behold him and not another. Job's confession is a personal confession. Not of some abstract theory like that of the friends, but of personally beholding his Redeemer. It reminds us of Lord's Day 7 that true faith is in what God has freely granted not only to others but also to me. Martin Luther is, is credited with saying much of religion turns on being able to use possessive pronouns. Take from me the word my and you take from me God. Job longs to see the face of his Redeemer. In his personal longing, these possessive pronouns that we see in verses 26 and 27 force us to ask the question whether that same longing is ours. 
Whether we too believe that God has come in the flesh, has become our next of kin in the incarnation, able to redeem us by becoming one with us, and then stands in our place by absorbing the wrath of God, the the wrath of Job 18 and wrath of Job 19 for us, so that we might behold the face of God in Christ after our skin has been destroyed and he comes again with glory. It's forcing us to ask whether that same hope is ours. And Job ends with that same warning in the last two verses. That if this hope of verses 25 to 27 is not yours, then be afraid of the sword, he says, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know that there is a judgment. Who's he speaking to? And he says that he's speaking to his friends. He says, if you continue to persecute me, If you continue to deny undeserved suffering and therefore deny undeserved grace, if you continue to reject me and therefore the one I foreshadow, then the redemption that he will bring is not for you. But you must make this confession too. That's how the chapter ends. It ends the glorious confession of the one that this whole book foreshadows, the one who will suffer in our place and redeem us from wrath, but then a warning for those who set themselves against him that there is a judgment. That this same redeemer who will at last stand upon the earth in the resurrection of the living and the dead will plead on behalf of those who are his to redeem them, but those who reject this gospel hope will not have this Redemption. This passage in the end is calling you to place your hope in Job's Redeemer and flee from the wrath to come by running to the one who bore it for you so you might behold God's face. That's the promise of Job 19. One that in verse 27 overwhelms Job as he says his heart yearns within him as this hope of of the resurrection and the beatific vision not only lay up for him and for us hope in the future, but is a source of joy and encouragement even now in the present in the midst of whatever trials we endure. Because remember, Job has not yet been redeemed. There's still 23 more chapters until the end, and even that glorious ending in chapter 42, Job doesn't know is coming. His hope here is not fixed on that. It's not fixed on a change in his earthly situation, but his hope is firmly fixed on the life to come. And in the midst of the darkness, it is the light of that resurrection morn shining into his, the darkness, the light of, of the gospel that gives him grace to endure. In the midst of the darkness of the first half of Job 19, the darkness that we've been seeing all throughout this book, it is the light of that resurrection morn shining into Job's darkness of the hope of the gospel that gives him grace to endure. He is reminded here by God's Spirit of the glorious reality of the life to come. And believing in that gospel hope revealed by God's Spirit in him, he finds grace for the present. And so shows us where we too find grace in the midst of our trials, not necessarily in those trials going away in this life, but in Christ who guarantees that they cannot separate us from God's love, which will be revealed in full on that day when we behold his face. 
And until then, our hearts yearn within us as we consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come.